Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I have a very long-standing, I didn't say old, very long-standing friend <laughs> and colleague, David Noble. He is an advisor to CEOs, and more interestingly of late, he's co-author of the new book with colleague Carol Kaufman, Real-Time Leadership, Finding Your Winning Moves When the Stakes Are High. David has been for years working in the private sector, working with CEOs and their teams, investors, star athletes, to help them become even better leaders. His personal purpose is to help leaders get clarity and personal growth where and when they most need it. He was named Thinkers 50 as one of the world's top coaches. He's also a senior advisor to the Institute of Coaching, which is affiliated with Harvard Medical School. And he is a senior advisor to large professional service firms such as Oliver Wyman and Egon Zender. Previously, David was a managing partner at two global strategy consulting firms. And before that, he was an operating executive in financial services across a range of roles, including CEO of the world's first digital bank and the first digital brokerage. So welcome to the caring economy, David Noble. Thanks, Toby. Started out as I was <laughs> in Canada. You are Canadian. And here you are today. Well, it, it all makes sense in retrospect. I'm not sure it made sense as I was going through it. <laughs> but I started out in um, financial services. And um, the great thing about the organization that I worked with was that they really believed in creating what they called general athletes. So unlike most career tracks, which create a lot of specialization and then move into more general management roles, they would throw me in from place to place that were um, wildly unrelated. So I'd be an economist one day, and then I'd be in Hong Kong the next day trying to grow the business. I'd be working in capital markets the next year. Then I'd be leading the digital bank another time. So it was really great experience because, uh, and helped me become a better coach, I think, because I saw all these different geographies, functions, and, and business lines. So that was great. And then, um, which is characteristic of me, I have a lot of impulse in my life. So at one point in time, I decided, hey, I want to be a strategist because they all seem to like to hang out with all the CEOs and have good conversations and good meals and travel around on debt. So I became a strategist, kind of the reverse order of what most people do in their career. Normally, they join a strategy firm, then they go into business. So I did it in reverse and I thought, how hard could it be? And you know, it was kind of hard, <laughs> but I actually enjoyed that, did that all over the world. And then I found that at some point, and I'm sure many um, viewers and listeners uh, feel this way, but that more, better, higher, faster, stronger just wasn't doing it for me anymore. Yeah. So I really stepped back and figured out what I cared about most. And that was when I was leading people, I cared about finding great people. Uh, developing them and then giving them good careers and where I couldn't help them anymore, I'd help them land another job somewhere else and just stay friends with them. So I've been doing that for about 12 years, um, turning into a coach and that's where I am now. Can, can you tell us, so as a, like a, as a wee kid growing up in Canada, you didn't think I want to be a strategist one day. So like, <laughs> how did you, how do you connect that? Because a lot of our younger <laughs> listeners are at that stage where they're thinking about what they want to be when they grow up, so to speak. And in the old days, it was, you know, fireman, doctor, kind of <laughs> whatever. Now it's so sophisticated and technologically driven. So were there some mentors or how did you define your career path early on? For people, the most important thing is just curiosity. 
So like, I didn't know what I didn't know uh, back then. And the way that I found new opportunities was to create what somebody called creating a lot of surface area in dialogues. So just going out to different um, areas that are outside your comfort zone, outside your familiarity, and uh, just trying things because then opportunities will show up and you can figure out whether or not they make sense for you. Uh, I had I had the benefit of a lot of great mentors through my career. So people that would basically selflessly invest time in me so that I could be a better person, a better leader, more effective um, operating executive. So I'm really grateful for them. Um, and I've also had uh, like one role model, which I stumbled into late in life, but um, he's still around and uh, he's someone I still uh, aspire to be and want to be. Someday. Say who that is or describe. Sure. His name, his name is Ashley Stevenson. And uh, he helped me in this last stage of my career or the current stage of my career, which is um, to be a coach and to be an author. And he basically inspired me, believed in me and, uh, and supported me and the way he lives his life and the way he sort of experiences life and grows from it is, um, is something I, I just, I want to be him. Yeah. And it's interesting how you're you're doing the same, right? Like, in a, that's exactly what your coaching is, right? You're mentoring, in a sense, others as you've been inspired or mentored. That's that's important to me to kind of pay it forward. Did you find that there were certain occasions that triggered you to say, "I got to change," or was it you saw something aspirationally and said, "I want to have that"? Or you talked a little bit about some sort of triggering moments. What were some of those moments, perhaps? Uh, so I think the first big moment um, was I had been uh, a leader in financial services for a long time. And then I was at Morgan Stanley in 9-11. And we had about 6,000 people in the in the offices of the various towers of the World Trade Center. And so um, I was in World Trade II. And, um, you know, my office evaporated and we lost people as well. And uh, I was in the command center. And I just thought after working that out, uh, after a period of about three months, I really reflected and thought, I just don't want to do this anymore. So I wanted to have a change. So that was kind of, kind of a moment back then. And then I think the strategy thing, um, when I did that for seven or eight years, it just basically ran its course. And then I wasn't running away from it, but I was running to being a coach because I think that it just sort of formed in my mind over time that that was the thing that I wanted to do. And I'm ha the happiest and I think the most effective in my life now. Yeah, it shows you're glowing. Can I, Thank if you. it's not too personal, can I, I didn't know after all these years of our friendship, I didn't know about the 9-11 experience. You had 6,000 employees and many perished and you're helping to salvage what was there. I mean, what was that like? I mean, I lived in New York and went through it, but not as closely as you did. I lost a friend in it, but that's just chilling. As I said, my offices were in World Trade Center, and I was part of the executive committee. And um, my boss at the time said, uh, let's meet uptown tomorrow. So we actually weren't in the office. Um, but when we saw the first plane strike, uh, we were all informed of that. And then when the second plane hit, we thought it's time to activate the, the emergency backup plans. So what we did was um, try to get down to Varick Street, which was our business continuity um, center, but that was obviously closed. All of lower Manhattan was closed. So then we had backups to the backup. And so half of us tried to get across the Brooklyn Bridge to um, another facility in Brooklyn. Half of us tried to get to Jersey City but obviously couldn't do that. 
So then we ended up back at Morgan Stanley's headquarters at 47th and, and Broadway. And um, then our security detail said, this is possibly a target. We have to get you out of here. So we ended up in an IT center um, on 7th Avenue and a command center kind of materialized. And then our CEO at the time, Phil Purcell, um, was at the front of the room just activating the, the continuity plans. And um, and then we had a big couple of big screens up and then we saw World Trade 2 fall. And uh, Phil just looked at the screen for probably a full 30 seconds. And then he turned back and he said, we're changing the plan. Now we have to go and see if anybody's still alive, if we can still help them. We need to find who's not around with us anymore. We need to notify the families. We need to take care of the families and get me the Fed governor on the phone. We have to try and keep the bond markets open so the tariffs don't win. So it was, to me, that was, you know, there, there are lots of times in the military where you get that kind of leadership, but for someone facing like a catastrophic event like this as a leader, it was pretty amazing to be um, in that room and to be, um, and to be led by him. Yeah. Well, that's riveting. I'm sorry for the losses you had and um, wow, chilling that experience. And clearly you can apply that and have applied that to the rest of your coaching and stuff. And, you know, I was working at the Times then and we were covering the story real time. And, right. you know, my husband Harlan has said before when he was stuck upstate at our, where we all have homes, he literally could not get back to Manhattan. It said the big flashing sign by the bridge, <laughs> Yonkers said uh, Manhattan closed. I mean, the city that never sleeps, it was, it's still quite chilling. It also helps you reflect on your own purpose in your life. And as you said, you then sort of helped out there and then moved on. Take us forward to today now. You're working at, you just, you just come out with this new book with Carol. Tell us about it and the genesis and what we can look forward to gleaning from it. I'm excited about this. So I actually wrote the book because I remember in my very first job, which was quite some time ago, I was writing a speech for the CEO and uh, I said, we are living through unprecedented times of volatility and uncertainty. <laughs> it's like, well, scroll forward a few decades and, and we're kind of still there. So there. Yeah. Uh, it's like, what do you do with all the overwhelm? Because it just continues to escalate. So we wrote real-time leadership because we think that you need to make the most of every moment as a leader. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, most leaders rely a lot on pattern recognition that they formed over years. So if they see A happening and then they see B happening, they kind of instinctively know that C is the right thing to do. So they're relying more on their reflexes. And, you know, that's okay in a normal operating environment, but we haven't been in one of those for, for many years, but particularly the last three years. One thing is reflexes don't help you get any better as a leader. And they certainly don't help you if you're facing something novel. So if it's a new type of crisis that you're applying the same old playbook to, it could take you in exactly the wrong direction and could hurt you. Also, on the opportunity side, let's say there's something that's brand new, there's a disruption, but there's a 10x opportunity sitting in front of you. And if you apply the usual playbook to that, you may not make the most of that as well. So for us, it was about like, how do you really make the most of every moment? And for us, it's a little bit about creating some space so that you can slow down in that space and figure out, you know, to calm yourself, to settle yourself, and then to figure out who you want to be in that moment and then step into that space in peak performance. So we've created a, a framework around that based on the top leaders that we've worked with over the last um, several years on what we think makes greater extraordinary leaders. And that's the MOVE model, M-O-V-E? Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. So 
yeah, sure. So it's it's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll try and I'll just try and uh, be brief about it. So M is for being mindfully alert about what your goals are. And you know, we often think that we're crystal clear on our goals when we're not. So for us, um, you want to be clear as a as a three dimensional human uh, on what your goals are. So the first is what do I need or want to get done? That's what we call the external goal. The second, which is often overlooked, is who do we want to be as people? Like, how do I want to be while I'm leading? Do I want to be kind? Do I want to listen? Do I want to be patient? Do I want to have perspective? Um, that often gets ignored. And the third is once I know what I want to do and who I want to be, is how do I need best relate to others to unlock their potential and achieve things together? So that's kind of the, the M is about like, let's be alert to what our goals are in a three-dimensional way. Mm-hmm. Then O is about generating options. So that's, we talked about the what, now this is the how. So how am I actually going to do that? And what we found is that um, a lot of leaders have a path to a win. So they understand they're going to navigate different ways and manage mm-hmm. to come to a win. But that's not enough these days because there's so many obstacles, so many curveballs thrown at you. So you need backups, you need backups to your backups. So we have to actually help you create more options, what we call way power. So that the more ways you have to a win, the more likely you are to win. Mm-hmm. Um, v is for what we call vantage points. So that's really just stepping back and going like, wait, wait a minute, is my vision clear on this? Or am I distorting things based on my personality, my values, my beliefs, the data that I'm selecting, the frameworks that I'm using, or do I even have a blind spot? So it's like, can I take other people's perspective and step into that, whether or not I um, I believe it, I have to accept that there are different perspectives out there. How do I make sure that I'm doing that? And then the last thing is, how do I take all this stuff and then have some impact at scale as a leader? And that's to engage and affect change. That's the E. And that's all about crafting the right leadership signal to send to your team and your organization and making sure that the, the signals that you send are the signals that are received by that team, mm-hmm. basically. So that's it in the, as a compact mm-hmm. statement. Which makes a lot of sense. I wonder if uh, you might share an example, either hypothetical or one you've worked with, or do you have an example of what success looks like? Someone who's either used the move model with you, you don't have to name names, you could maybe uh, an example. So on the three-dimensional leadership, like you can take just any one of those parts of the model can actually be super helpful in letting people have breakthroughs. The three-dimensional leadership thing is really important because we all know leaders who are very outcome focused. So they'll drive any kind of result and literally mow down their people. And then we also know people who are, you know, great servant leaders, uh, but they really find it hard to, um, to hold people accountable. And then we're also all acquainted with those great subject matter experts or individual contributors who really find it hard to relate to other humans, right? They're all kind of, they're one dimensional. A very practical example is um, to become a three-dimensional leader is just to be clear on what you want to get done. So maybe you want to walk into that executive committee meeting and get approval for a major initiative. It's like, okay, I'm clear on that. But are you really? So if you just step back and said, is that really my goal? Maybe your goal is to have a better conversation around the table, make sure that every voice is heard so that people do feel like they've been heard and seen and that you can make an even better recommendation to get approval at the next meeting. So that's kind of an example of how to do that. Then um, who do you want to be? 
is the great thing to do is to just ask yourself this question over and over again over the course of the day. Like, who do I want to be right now? And a, a practical example is, okay, I'm in traffic. Someone is like at the red light in front of me, the light turns green and they're clearly texting and they're waiting about 20 seconds before they move. So it's like, who am I going to, who do I want to be? Do I want to be the guy that leans on the horn that goes crazy? And, or am I going to be the person that just like, okay, I got to let that wash over me. And then the third example of the interpersonal side is we often live by the golden rule. So I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated, but that is so wrong. You need to treat people the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to treat them. So if you want to like, just give me the news straight up, like just lean in and tell me what it's all about. That's great for a certain subset of the planet, right? But for the rest of us, it might be like, I can't receive that. Like, yeah. You have to tell me how much you care about me first before you can give me news like that. So you've got to like connect with me before you can do that. So those are kind of just practical examples. They, they sound very uh, humane, humanistic sort of um, mm human-centered and I wonder if you anticipate being charged with wokeism like everyone <laughs> to yeah like I mean seriously you've got a variety a full spectrum of leaders you're working with how do you say I know this might sound warm and fuzzy or empathy matters but yeah and you kind of have to be primed to receive your message I would think but I don't know yeah. how's it going so far hey look we Carol and I only work with people not to make them better leaders, but to also help them become better people as part of the process. And, you know, that can appear to be squishy. Um, and then some people will roll their eyes when they, <laughs> when they hear about this. But in the long run, we really do believe that having those qualities of character strengths and cultivating them is just going to make you more effective. And the, and the best example, I think, is um, we collaborate with a thought partner who's a recently retired four-star general, Chuck Jacoby. And uh, one of the things that he said to us, and he's been in many combat situations as well as in massive leadership situations, like he'd be the one ordering the Chinese balloon to be shot down uh, by the F-22. Um, he said that in his experience working and leading and fighting some of the toughest people on the planet, that kindness matters most. Yeah. And so he comes from his leadership from a position of kindness. And that was kind of laser burned on our brain when he yeah. said something like that. You know, I, I think that's how I've tried to conduct myself, my life and lead other people. And it does come back in good ways. I found I always manage my teams to appreciate the good when you're in it because time changes. And mm -hmm. so um, it's really satisfying now when 20 years after I've had a team member, literally this week, I had a colleague in Scotland call and say, you know, I just had my wife was going through this layoff thing at work and she's the recruiter. And I channeled what you told me years ago, which is the mirror test, which is when you're mm -hmm. going to reduction in force, can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did as much as I could and was as humanly you know, available or empathetic to this person for this life changing moment? And if you can do that, then it's a lot easier in management, I think, to say, I've reconciled all the responsibilities I have here and tried to deliver as best I could. To hear that come back 20 years later from him talking to his wife is satisfying both that the 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 message was delivered, but also that the friendship is still there 20 years after we work together. Because you really do, you can positively affect people's lives just as you know you can negatively with how you treat them. And I like that sort of description of carnage you described some CEOs mm. who will barrel through things. And um, 
So enough about my views on it. Um, can you tell me where how the book's going, where you're traveling? Is it in English only or is it audio as well? Um, where does one find it? Sure, thank you. So um, we just kicked off the tour. It's being published uh, February 21st, which is um, coming right up. And uh, obviously you can get it on Amazon and in bookstores and Barnes and Noble, um, wherever. Um, and so we kicked off our roadshow couple of weeks ago. So we've been in DC and Dallas and Houston. We're coming up, we're going to Miami, New York, and then we're taking it to um, Europe and the UK for a couple of months and then beyond that to Asia. So we got a lot going on. Good for you. And I know real-time leadership has already been recognized by Inc. Magazine as I believe they say mm. book is one of the mm. foremost anticipated business books of 2023. So mm. kudos to you on that. Thank you. And did you say, is there an audio version as well? Or are you going to do one? Oh, yes, there, there will be. It's not released yet. It's just that it was difficult for Carol and I to record that because we're actually writing in one voice throughout the book. So it's like, what's Carol going to say? And what's, <laughs> what am I going to say? So um, the audio version will be released shortly. Good. It was my experience in narrating my own book that a lot of people get that do their reading now through audio books. So I'm glad you're doing that. Yes, absolutely. It come out in other languages or has it already? Yes, it has not yet, but we're expecting the uh, a version within probably about three months as we get through this print run to come out um, first in Spanish um, and then in Japanese, actually, because we had one of our major endorsers is, um, is a rock star CEO in Japan. He's the youngest CEO of a major company, $100 billion market cap. And uh he credited us with with helping him in his leadership. So I think we're we're gonna have a big audience there. Awesome. Particular. Yes. Yeah. Um, Thank can you. I ask you about um leadership and, and so topical these days is uh DNI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, I'm sure it comes up regularly in your coaching. And any observations you've had about that particular topic in leadership? How are they embracing it? How are they processing it? How are they catalyzing change or denying it? <laughs> Yeah, look, well, I think, you know, it all, it, it's been obviously uh, an important topic on the leadership agenda for many years, and even more so in the last three years. And, um, and I think some traction has been made in this. Sometimes there's some values washing in this where the they talk, but there's not um, a lot of substance. What I worry about now, frankly, is the crowding out of DE&I. Uh, on the agenda with everything else that's happening. So, you know, you've got a macroeconomy that appears to be flowing. You've got people concerned with reductions in force. You've got um, capital markets that are all over the place. Inflation's there. Um, workforce issues about the whole nature of work. Those things are really at the top of the agenda and they're crowding out a little bit. I think there is very good progress being made at the margins uh, in the boardrooms. So I can tell you, like, just based on my work with Aegon Zender, that, um, you know, the um, board compositions are changing uh, quite significantly in the U.S. in particular, but also around the world. But still not as fast as, as we'd like. But I think as board seats come up, there is some progress around that. And for us, that whole issue is, is um, built into what we call the vantage point. That's the V in the move model. And so... When I, when I think about the book, I think maybe we did this a little too implicitly and we could have been more explicit about the DE&I component uh, because it's just part of, you know, who Carol and I are, um, but we could have brought it out more. But it's really about uh, diversity, not not just in the 
not just in the current way we're thinking about diversity, but just diversity much more broadly around experience and um, insight and um, and thought. Mm -hmm. So that's part of being able to step into someone else's perspective and value that perspective. Yeah. Very exciting. And of course, leaders are young and old. It's not just a top dog. Yeah. So I could imagine yep. what would be really relevant to some of my audience who are just starting out in their careers, because I can see leadership in a four-year-old. I'm sure you can as well. You just know, <laughs> you see it. Yeah. Nurture. It's both a little bit, uh, you know, it's both nurture and nature, I think. So I'm yep. glad it's out there. David, I want to ask you one more question, which is just about pearls of wisdom, advice you have, the life you've led. Um, what would you say to a young person or someone more senior who's perhaps been disrupted in his or her life? Any words of wisdom on um, leading a purposeful career and life? Um, actually pretty simple. And it's two things for both um, those types of, uh, of folks, um, just in a different order. So I, I would actually say for people who are at the beginning of their career, it's cultivate your curiosity. So have what uh, the Buddhists would call a beginner's mind. So just don't have any fixed perceptions about what life is like in the in the workforce, whether you're in the public sector or private sector. Look for different opportunities. Be curious about learning different things about how other people think, about um, how other organizations work, about how you can grow um, as yourself. And then you know pick what you um, pick what you love to do, and then look at what you're good at. Look at that intersection. So I think for for people who are just starting out, it's like, just really find out what you love and then what you're good at. And then I think for people who have been disrupted and and they're just dealing with that, I think it's like, really understand what you're good at first, because that's gonna be the thing that carries you through and then look at what you love. And hopefully there will be some intersection there. So that's my, my thought. Great pearls of wisdom. David Noble, the coach to CEOs, globally, as well as the new co-author of Real-Time Leadership. Pick it up on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And David Noble, I want you to come back maybe halfway through the book tour and tell us how things are going and how the reception is. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Toby. Really enjoyed this today. Likewise. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at tusnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.